Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 128, recorded on July 28th, 2021. The Azure puts its gold in Cloud Knox. Good evening, Jonathan and Peter. How's it going? Good evening. Going well. Welcome back, Jonathan. It's been a while. I hope you had a nice, lovely vacation. I did. As I was saying earlier, I traveled to the top of Mount Olympus and uh, and returned from my arduous trial. Here I am. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, we, it was, we, we've missed you the last few weeks, and the listeners have as well. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Ryan though is now gone on vacation, so it's just the merry-go-round of vacations where people just keep <laughs> you know coming and going all over the place. But uh, you know, some of us, some of us, you know, had a, you know came from a distance and recording from you know, places like Hawaii or Utah when we're traveling, but uh, not so much. Yes, else. <laughs> vacation does not stop me. Uh, yes. In Hawaii. Business trips to Utah don't um, uh, sound either, although the audio quality was terrible. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> pluses and minuses, I guess. Uh, so apologies for that in, back in episode 126 because uh, it's pretty rough. All righty. Well, we have uh, not a lot of news this week, but exciting news that it was dropped. So I actually like it better this way when there's not a lot of stories, but the stories are quality. That's always how I like it. Uh, first up, Jonathan, Salesforce has completed their $27.7 billion acquisition of Slack. Took only eight months to close that acquisition because I'm sure the antitrust people were uh, quite uh, active. The uh, you know interesting enough they're going to integrate it apparently into the Salesforce Customer 360 uh, product, which is a customer data platform introduced in 2018 to allow companies to connect Salesforce apps and maps to, uh, map teams and reconcile data sources across a whole organization. I don't really understand the connection there, but I hope someone does because. Hopefully they don't kill Slack. That would be horrible. Because have you tried to use Teams? It's not good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you know, interesting enough, you know, I think Slack has actually struggled through pandemic. You know, where companies like Zoom and Teams were able to get huge adoption during the pandemic, Slack, you know, had re- relatively slow growth. Uh, I think pricing pressure as well as pressure from Teams uh, impacted them pretty negatively uh, throughout the pandemic, especially when you get it included in Office sixty five. And so, if Salesforce's strategy is well, we'll just include Slack in your. Salesforce license, that's not a bad deal either because almost every company is running Salesforce these days for something. That's pretty good. Uh, so, you know, hopefully we'll see some, you know, when you, it's not, no longer the only product, <laughs> maybe they'll be more willing to uh, reduce some prices in Slack because Slack is pretty costly. I kind of wonder if Slack was already had really high adoption before the pandemic already. I mean, people used it in office, whereas they would not use Zoom, you know, between meeting rooms in the building. So maybe, maybe it's just that they, they already had the customer base and so there wasn't the growth the growth uh, opportunity for them. Yeah, but I mean, if you had so many new customers running to Microsoft Teams or to Zoom or to other things, you would expect that some amount of that business would move to Slack too, you know, because they were not using something prior because they chose Teams and they chose Zoom for their solution instead of Slack. So, you know, that, that's opportunities they've missed out on. Maybe there's good reasons why they missed out on those opportunities. I don't know. I knew they were going to get acquired one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> you just thought they weren't going to IPO first. So, I didn't, you know, no. Yeah, but apparently it's you know it's been a terrible IPO for them because they they IPO'd in 2019 for 23 billion dollar market cap and then they got sold to Salesforce for 27.7, you know, two years later basically that's not a lot of growth. So definitely, I thought they IPO'd at like 15 billion. Uh, well, according to the article I sold this number from, it was 23 billion market cap. I bet it closed. Uh, yeah, I bet it closed on day one that high. <laughs> that's possible. <laughs> that's very very possible. Well, you know, I was curious to see what they do. Uh, Mark Benoff did have a quote here. Uh, which he says, together we'll define the future of enterprise software, creating the digital HQ that enables every organization to deliver customer and employee success from anywhere. Ugh. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark, for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> Let me give you a non, non, non-quote quote. That's how I love those. 
All right. Well, moving on to AWS and more interesting cloud news other than what happens to Slack. Amazon Virtual Private Cloud, or VPC, customers can now assign IP prefixes to their EC2 instances. Uh, AWS VPCs now allow you to assign an, either an IPv4 or an IPv6 prefix to your EC2 instance, enabling you to scale and simplify the management of your container and networking applications that require multiple IP addresses on an instance. Uh, so before this release, you would have to get really large instances to get lots of IP addresses, and potentially you'd end up having to scale out more than you need to just to handle the IP needs. And so by being able to assign a prefix, uh, you can now basically run way more VMs on, don't, and it only requires a super large VM to do so. So this is a pretty nice feature overall, you know, costing companies money for no good reason, something AWS doesn't like to do, and so they're saving you money if you're in that boat. It's like a subnet on a box. Basically. That's yeah. awesome. Makes network appliances a lot a lot easier to, to deploy. I mean, I know this is targeted at Kubernetes and and uh, you know, IPs per service, but but still, this is really useful all around. I mean, the, the IPv6 address is limited to only a slash 80. I mean, <laughs> what, what are you going to do with 2 billion addresses on, on the machine? I don't know why you have one box. <laughs> you're going to run 2 billion containers. <laughs> That's what you're going to do with it. At yeah. some point in the future, people are going to make fun of you for thinking that you would only need 2 billion IP addresses. I don't know if it's two billion or not. I'm just, I'm just. It's probably more. It's probably more than two billion. That's the crazy thing. <laughs> yeah, like the, the subnetting in uh, IPv6 just blows my mind when you start doing the math and you're like, oh yeah, I lost the. A lot. My calculator doesn't go that large. That's <laughs> quite often. It's uh, what is really nice though is now now we're not IP restricted to only having one IP on these older instances. It's still limited to Nitro only, but still uh, the smaller boxes you can only have one IP. So now you can have uh, multiple, which is pretty useful. Yeah, I, I see lots of use cases, lots of good networking use cases you mentioned as well. Uh, you know, lots of opportunities for this to get used. Um, Surprised this took so long, actually. Uh, but uh, you know, having a whole subnet to a, a single node is almost—it almost kind of blows my mind and like the complexity of that. Like, really? Like, I guess that's what we do. Uh, used to, have to do back in ESX days, but uh, you know, it, it just—it it kind of blows my mind in thinking it through. Like, oh, that's a lot of IPs and a lot of. <laughs> It's still not a huge number of IPs, especially for IPv4. I think it was a slash twenty-eight. So what's that? Like sixteen addresses per. So for every for every address that you used to be able to assign to an instance, you can now assign um, a, a slash twenty-eight. So right. even maybe maybe you get sixteen thirty-two addresses or something. Still, it's pretty. Yeah, but it's pretty I think on some of the larger instance types, you were getting. Uh, you, know, you could do up to eight dedicated ENIs. I think it was so mm. you know, eight times sixteen. That's quite a bit. Yeah. So. And hopefully, it just gets rid of our need to do all the port mapping. Yeah, that'd be that'd be Stuff. ideal. No surprise yeah. that this this can't be exposed to the, uh, the the public interfaces. I don't think you can get uh, chunks of sixteen public IPs assigned to your instances. Though I think it's internal. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be awesome if you could. Yeah, I'll have all of the public IPs, please. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's something I would. I on my kind of wish list of things I wish Amazon would give us would be the ability to like. Uh, reserve contiguous blocks of IP addresses and just have them tied to my my organization, and so I could just use them in my org, and I'd be mm. willing to pay for that, <laughs> you know, even if they're not attached or attached. So. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. Well, if you are uh, in the serverless side of the world where you are doing a lot of work with uh, serverless deployment pipelines and everything, one of the big uh, challenges has always been how do you do it in a great CI/CD way? And so Amazon has built you know, over time a bunch of best practices. Uh, and you can find all kinds of information on these at serverlessland.com, which is AWS's landing page for all things teach you serverless. Uh, but they have now added a new feature to the CLI, uh, which is called AWS SAM Pipelines. 
this CLI command gives you access to the benefits of a CI/CD in minutes, such as accelerating deployment frequency, shortening the lead times for changes, and reducing your deployment errors. Uh, and it gives you a default pipeline template for popular CI/CD tools such as Jenkins, GitLab, GitHub Actions, and AWS CodeBuild slash CodePipeline. Uh, that all follow the AWS best practices for deployments. Uh, all available to you immediately. Uh, and if you want to learn how to do this, uh, they do have a full walkthrough on the Compute blog, as well as instructional videos, like I mentioned, over at serverlessland.com that you can check out. Nice. I hope to see more of these, this kind of thing. It's been one of my mental blocks. I mean, I've been using serverless since Lambda was announced, but building it into a pipeline is such a chore, and and Jenkins is such a chore in itself. So having a, having a canned way to deploy a pipeline, is, it's great. Yeah, especially one that meets best practices and hopefully at least privilege and you know meets a bunch of compliance hard boxes. That's always a win to be able to get that just kind of easily out of the box. Um, and you know, I think for a lot of people, just starting out with code build code pipeline is a good starting place. Um, you know, yeah, getting into Jenkins, getting into GitHub Actions is ideal too. But you know, if you don't have any of that infrastructure, just being able to directly plug into AWS as tools is always helpful. Do you have? Are you working with any workloads right now that are based on SAM? Uh, I am not uh, currently, but I have in the past. Yeah, I have not had any customer workloads on Sam yet, but I'm sure we'll get there. Yeah, I mean it's still pretty new. I mean, serverless is kind of the one that was the leader there for a while. Uh, you know, Sam is kind of coming up. To, you know, it's still playing feature catch up in my mind, but uh, I think it's getting closer. Yeah, they they both had limitations and, and advantages, which is kind of hard to pick between them. Yeah, uh, this uh, may the, be, this may give them edge finally. Yeah, I mean, I mean, having uh, met the founder of serverless.com, <laughs> uh, that alone told me that I should not use his product. I mean, he's a nice guy, but uh, he's very, he feels very strongly about his product uh, and is not afraid to tell you why his product is awesome and <laughs> at length. Uh, so, yeah, nice, uh, but, uh, you know, not, not my, my type of ego that I want to deal with <laughs> anything in this world. My, uh, my days back in the Pearl CPAN days uh, have burned me from all egos <laughs> in oh. open source software. <laughs> Pearl. <laughs> All right. Well, um, this is a great announcement from Amazon uh, that a lot of you probably have custom code for. Uh, and so this is uh, the new Amazon Route 53 application recovery controller, uh, which is a set of capabilities for Route 53 that continuously monitor an application's ability to recover from failures and controls application recoverability across multiple AWS AZ regions and on-premise environments to help you build apps that must deliver very high availability and low latency. Uh, one of the things that this thing does is it basically provides you a readiness check and then a routing control function. And the readiness check continuously monitors your AWS resource configurations, capacity, and network routing, and allows you to monitor for any changes. So things that it's checking for are like auto-scaling groups are configured properly. Uh, your your service limits are configured properly across multiple regions. Uh, and load balancers, volumes, etc. And those are all available and ready for you to be able to fail over at a moment's notice. And if it doesn't have that, it'll alert you to say, hey, you have a problem you need to address. The routing controls uh, help you rebalance traffic across application replicas during failures to ensure that applications stay available. And the routing controls work with Route 53 health checks to redirect traffic to the application replica via DNS. Uh, there are three, you know, for all of you who wrote your own code for this, uh, which is me, Jonathan, me too. and Peter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And Ryan, if he was here, uh, there's there's an improvement apparently to what we've built, uh, which you know the traditional automated method has a couple of issues. The first one being routing controls. Uh, the routing controls that this now gives you gives you a way to fail over the entire application stack based on application metrics or partial failures, such as a five percent increased error rate or a millisecond of increased latency. 
Second benefit of this over our code is uh, routing controls give you safe and simple manual overrides and use them to shift traffic for maintenance purposes to recover from failures when your monitors fail to detect an issue. And the third benefit being routing controls can use a capability called safety rules to prevent common side effects associated with fully automated health checks, such as preventing failover to unprepared replica or flapping. Uh, Number four, it's not written by Jonathan, Peter, Ryan, or myself, <laughs> which, is totally, <laughs> which is always a win. Uh, and the routing controls and checks can be added to existing infrastructure via CloudFormation on day one. So thank you for that. Uh, and this is where it lets you down just a little bit. Uh, the readiness checks are relatively cheap, uh, about uh, four, four and a half cents per hour or $32.40 a month. Uh, but for each cluster you're using, it's $2.50 uh, an hour or $1,800 a month, which is a little bit on the steep side. Again, this may be a, you know, we don't want everyone running to this day one pricing announcement, or this may be what they're going to do in the future. But, uh, you know, or, you know, $2,500 uh, or $1,800 is a lot cheaper than, you know, all of our salaries combined. So maybe you're maybe it's a savings for your organization. I can't really say one way or the other. Uh, this is a global service that can be used to monitor and control app recovery for apps. And it's running in any public commercial AWS region uh, now. It's awesome. I wonder how many people actually use it to to do things automatically. Though I think I've seen a lot of fear, especially in enterprises, that building building an automated failover system is is like is you know is prone to false alarms. Things you know this what uh, one particular thing the alert fails rather than the the service fails, yeah. and all of a sudden you yeah. fail over and it, it takes time to spin things up. And but yeah, I mean, so it's often it oftentimes it seems like these things generate alerts which go to a uh, an arc or a um, SRE team, and then the SRE team pushes the button finally to say, okay, yeah, we've checked, we double-checked, now do the failover. I, I do like the checks for, for um, available capacity. That's great. If, if, if they can be smart enough to say, well, you're using this capacity in this region, you need the same capacity in another region, but we don't have it. That's, um, that's certainly good to know before you start the failover. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty great. Yeah, two things caught my eye with this. One would be they're, they're kind of starting to integrate well architected into real time monitoring, which is kind of neat. And then, but I mean, I don't see this as a DR recovery tool. Like, I would not implement this as part of a DR solution. I'd implement it as part of an HA solution. Yeah, definitely. It's it's for highly available apps for sure because you know, these apps need to be somewhat running <laughs> or able to run very quickly. Um, yeah, so I'd, and I would definitely I wouldn't use this for DR, but I think again, HA, active active architectures, etc. This is yeah. a, a great solution for that because it's got to be automated. Um, I mean, it's got to yeah, be automated. I think the big reason why companies shy away from it, though, is that number, you know, that third reason where automated health checks um, are sometimes too error prone uh, or that you have flapping issues where, you know, you, you failed over to one region, then you failed back because the problem just keeps moving back and forth. That's why you want to do those validations. So the fact that they've kind of built in some safety rules for that, um, you know, tells me that they understand that challenge. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why they built this. And then, you know, they actually get into, and I didn't summarize it here in the article, but they get into a lot of terminology that they're using, and you can actually define things as recoverable units. Um, so, like these things together are, are you know, are a unit of uh, you know recoverability I want to have. And so, you can kind of break your app into multiple units, or what they call cells in this case, and then you can group those together into a recovery group and a recovery a resource set, and basically then validate those things. So you can actually say, well, one cell is bad, but you know the overall app is fine. Don't fail over. And so, those are those safety rules kind of play and to kind of help avoid those false positives that you're talking about. So, I think there's a lot of good stuff here. I think this will get some more feature enhancements over the next few months, but uh, great day one feature. Yeah. Super like this one, especially CloudFormation support. Yeah, the breaking, breaking apps down into cells is, is really useful because I think the number of conversations I must have had over the past 
five or six years about, or do we fail over the whole stack or do we yeah. just fail over these small components? Why fail over Lambda if it's only EC2 that's got a problem, that kind of thing. So the ability to, to break that down into smaller components and fail individual components over, that will probably bring around some architectural changes. Um, but awesome. How great. I mean, it's, it's got to be great for everybody, really. Yeah, just it also forces you to define those items, which makes you think through how things are going to fail over or how they should. I, I bet going through the process of configuring that, many teams will start disagreeing on on what a cell is in their uh, in their architecture. Well, and, and, and the nice thing is they give you some good guidelines, right? If it's not a if it's not an independently runnable service, it's yeah. not a unit. And so, if, you know, if I can't, if I have a dependency on another service, then that's not a unit I can fail over uh, in that method. It's yeah. not a shared resource, and so you yeah. have to think about that differently. And I think it's good. It's a good terminology, good vocabulary, just to learn in general that I think you can apply to a lot of architectural conversations about you know HA in particular, which is a difficult topic. Does that make teams. does that make the concept of microservices sort of fade away a little bit though? I mean. We wouldn't want to fail over necessarily a single microservice in that case if it's not a, a you know it's a single operable unit. But at the same time, maybe it becomes part of the application architecture, but not part of the deployment architecture. Maybe maybe we sort of start drawing new lines. Yeah. Well, and I mean, microservices when you really look at how they are defined, they're supposed to be completely you know isolated units. <laughs> you know, if you're in a situation where you go into you know from an API gateway into a microservice and then call six other microservices, yeah. you've, you've sort of failed at <laughs> microservices. <laughs> yeah, at that point, uh, and so you know, I, I think there's you know there are a lot of bad practices I've seen in microservices where people have not quite got that autonomous unit concept. Again, you know, I think there's a lot of education in C and CF and cloud native architecture that we are still teaching developers, teaching operations people. Um, and this is one of those areas where I think it just gives you one more toolbox uh, to use in that discussion. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, moving on to GCP. Uh, so GCP every week typically releases what they call a sketch note. Uh, and we don't typically talk about them here as news because they're typically, you know, it's just a diagram. Uh, <laughs> kind of written in crayons, as I like to call them. Like, oh, they're you're written in crayons, so you really get a good idea of what these things are. Uh, and so there's two this week that I thought I'd just quickly mention because I think they're uh, a, helpful. Uh, the first one is a new Google's Kubernetes engine cartoon, uh, which walks you through how Google's Kubernetes works, uh, all the benefits of it, etc. And it's a quick, really easy way to compare what Google's Kubernetes engine can do and what the capabilities are and what the different terminology means in a very simple, digestible uh, fashion. So that's the first one. And then uh, they also released one for Data Fusion, which if Ryan was here, man, he'd be super happy because he and I both talked about Data Fusion. Like, I don't get it. And now I have, a, I have a handy diagram that helps me get it so much better than I did before, which is always helpful. So um, these are definitely available to you on the GCP blog. And I recommend you subscribe to the blog just to get access to these, especially if you're doing a lot of stuff in GCP. We probably won't talk about them again uh, here at the show for a while. Maybe we'll remind you again in the future. But uh, these are great. Definitely check them out. I highly recommend them. And uh, they're a great introduction to any of these services. 
All right. Well, uh, last year, Google brought Windows to GKE. And now they're bringing GKE Windows to you with Anthos. Uh, so if you want to run your Windows Server containers via Anthos on VMware or in another uh, on-premise environment, or even potentially another cloud provider like AWS or Azure, uh, you can now do so. Uh, bringing Windows support to their family of Kubernetes-based services with the same experience lets you modernize apps faster and achieve a consistent development and deployment experience across hybrid and cloud environments. Uh, plus, by running these workloads side by side, you get operational consistency and efficiency. No need to have multiple teams specializing in different Kubernetes engines uh, or platforms to manage your different workload. Uh, so Anthos is continuing to take over the world once again. One 10K chunk at a time. Yeah, I'm not sure I could afford to run yeah, Windows exactly. and Anthos at the same time. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, probably Windows customers are their target market because they already have enough money to pay for the Windows licensing. You just, you know, $10,000 is yeah. cheap to them. Good point. I don't know. I see most people transforming their Windows apps, which are usually .NET apps, to move to .NET Core on Linux. So I don't see a ton of interest yeah, in this. That's yeah. a more common path. Well, I mean, because everyone tried Windows containers and realized they're terrible, <laughs> is what I hope. Uh, and so then they would say, well, if I can't do Windows containers, what do I go to next? And .NET Core is kind of the best option because you're not throwing away all that that code you've already written for over years. You know, there are limitations on .NET Core. It doesn't have some of the UI UX elements. So if your app has some dependencies there, um, there's still some modernization. Or if you're on an older version of .NET, uh, you have to upgrade to at least 3.5. Um, so you know, even .NET Core transformations are somewhat complicated for some teams. Yep. Yeah, fonts of all things. How long have they been around for? <laughs> Yeah, it's just it, it, some weird choices of what they ripped out yeah. of .NET Core and put it to .NET Core. You know, it's just like okay, I get, I get why you did it, but you also killed backward compatibility, which was one of your big pretenses of why you should adopt .NET in the first place. Uh, you know, so I, it's a little weird. But uh, if you're doing .NET development and C sharp code in particular, I think .NET Core is a great option, uh, unless you're doing legacy .NET, then don't go there. <laughs> Well, if you are doing enterprise data warehouse migrations, you know that one of the crucial steps in a data warehouse, database, or data lake migration project is data validation. Uh, and so this typically involves comparing structured and semi-structured data from the source and target tables and verify that they match after each migration step. Hopefully you're not doing this manually, or if you are using something like Mechanical Turk to do it. <laughs> but if you are using tooling, uh, Google has your back with the new data validation tools. Uh, the tools use the IBIS framework to connect a large number of data sources, including BigQuery, Cloud Spanner, Cloud SQL, Teradata, and many, many more, including all of your favorite enterprise databases, uh, to then compare the data and validate that the data going into the data warehouse matches what's in the source data, all through the power of machine learning and AI from Machine Google. learning and AI. Oh, or, or hash algorithms, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever, you know, how you define AI and ML, that's your call. Yeah. This, this is really useful. I, I was involved in a very large data migration from um, Oracle to SQL Server of all things a long time ago. And the, one of the biggest concerns, it was, it was for sort of fairly mission-critical data, and one of the biggest concerns was, oh, great, you, you say you can export these tables and you say you can move the data from here to here, but how can we be sure that everything arrives? And how can we be sure that you know, all, the, all the references are still intact and it's still going to be effectively the same data set at the other end? I had to write all kinds of scripts to, uh, to validate the data. So having this out of the box is is awesome. Yeah. Well, and SOC now requires that too. Like when you're moving systems in a SOC compliant environment, you have to prove the data is what it is <laughs> from both locations and you do a lot of checksumming of tables and all kinds of nastiness. Uh, so yeah, any type of tool that does this type of comparison in more real time yeah. is super helpful. Especially as you go to you know zero downtime migration <laughs> strategies. <laughs> you need something. 
All right. And our final Google story is about Looker. Uh, Looker, for those of you who don't know, is Google's far superior version of QuickSight. Uh, <laughs> there are several new features uh, available this week, uh, tr- you know, all wrapped around traditional dashboards, which are no longer good enough for most businesses. But I don't know about that. My, I mean, most companies are just excited to get any dashboard or any visibility into their data-driven business. Uh, and the new Looker features include the new Looker extension framework, uh, which is part of the new Looker developer portal, which takes care of the tedious aspects of building a web app so that developers can focus on developing the data product itself. And with the new Looker development tools, it makes it easier to monetize your data, creating new and ongoing revenue streams. And so Google cannot be blamed for the data privacy violations. It's all on you. Looker is expanding their multi-cloud approach by now supporting the hosting on Microsoft Azure in addition to Google Cloud and AWS. Uh, So you can now make Looker look at all of your clouds. And by hosting a Looker on a cloud of your choice, organization can improve your performance, consolidate cloud deployments, or meet your compliance requirements and better fit analytics in their cloud strategy. In addition to that, they've also created several new feature sets uh, to support a a broad set of data experiences from modern BI to custom data applications, including capabilities such as API Explorer, which is an interactive way to explore the Looker API, prototype requests, and execute complex API calls without writing any code. So no code for Looker, (laughs) always good. No code for APIs, I love it. Yeah. Uh, New filter components, which allow developers to bring the filters they declare on the dashboard in Looker into any embedded app or extension. The new cloud cost management solution, which offers an out-of-the-box robust reporting and BI capability to get up and running quickly with transparency across the three major clouds. So uh, this is a built-in Looker (laughs) reporting dashboard for cost management. Cloud ability and cloud health and everybody, they should be scared. And then Looker mobile app, uh, allowing everyone to get insights on the go on their mobile devices. And the app is available in 22 languages and supports biometric authentication like Face ID and Touch ID. You know, I remember us talking a year ago, or maybe even more than a year ago, when Azure were launching their their sort of QuickSights type. I don't remember what it's called now, but they 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 also had a cost Power BI, isn't it? Yeah, it was some kind of cost. It was a cost management thing, and we said back then, wouldn't it be really advantageous for a cloud to be able to suck in data from from the other clouds to do side by side comparisons and say, hey, look, you know, this would have been cheaper if you were running with us. To see Google come to market mm-hmm. with this kind of thing first, though, is is pretty interesting. Well, I think I think Azure did release the ability to suck your AWS yeah. bill into their reporting, no. but they never did Google. Um, at least I don't know of. And so they, you know, they did. Something. And Google did AWS with BigQuery. Yep. There was a, there was some stuff big, <laughs> yeah. for BigQuery with uh, I think uh, GDocs on top, right? With Sheets on top. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But this, you know, having the Looker dashboards gives you much more powerful data visualizations than any of those tools would have given you. But, you know, powered by BigQuery, that's always a win for that data set. So I know if I'm doing another cloud cost FinOps project, I'm going to be looking pretty hard at, uh, you know, BigQuery and Looker to do all that visualization work. I wonder how long, really, visualization tools have to, to kind of live and how, how long people are really going to care about those things. I mean, at, at what point do we, do we stop having people looking at graphs and charts and, and alerts and monitoring you know, in this kind of format and just kind of offload that to the AI uh, and just have it send us alerts instead. Like, why Why do you need to pay a person to, to sit there and look at these things? Uh, I don't know. Executives love pretty pictures. As long as that number, you know, that chart's going up yeah, really. to the right. So, <laughs> you know, for as long as, uh, you know, we need to continue to make executives feel warm and fuzzy about their businesses, I think those will continue to exist. But you're right, the... The cognitive analysis of those charts it become more mm. and more of an AI function over time. Uh, but you know, there's still going to be people who want the chart for the bragging rights or board reports, or especially with regard to operations. Uh, you know, system operations, SRE work. I mean, I could see a lot less need for humans to be watching those charts. But yeah, everyone's still going to want to see the sales and marketing charts. <laughs> Everyone loves to see that funnel of leads, right? Yeah. So. 
for listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud's zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. Moving on to Azure, Microsoft is doubling down on cybersecurity with the purchase of CloudNox. Uh, CloudNox, of course, is a platform designed to protect resources and identities across multi-cloud and hybrid cloud environments. Uh, Terms of the deal were not disclosed, but Microsoft has said Azure customers will be able to right-size permissions and enforce least privileges principles, employing continuous analytics to help prevent security breaches. Uh, you know, as organizations adopt hybrid work and deploy more cloud services, those entities then require access and permissions. And being able to dynamically uh, use ML and AI capabilities to determine permissions, privileges, and entitlements uh, helps you secure your environment much more cleanly. CloudNox was founded originally in 2016 by former VMware engineers Balaji Parimi and Rao Cheruki and provide a service that leverages activity-based authorization APIs to detect and remediate overprivileged machines and users. They have about 58 employees and raised $22.8 million in venture capital uh, up until the acquisition by Azure. I have not seen CloudNox in action at all. I don't yeah. know if you have. Never, never heard of them, actually. Uh, I saw some demos of their product, uh, you know, when they first launched. Uh, and it was interesting, but, you know, they, it was expensive was my, was my take on it. Um, you know, I think it had a, had potential to be really interesting and really valuable. But you know, Azure was actually building a lot of these capabilities into their cloud natively. You know, least privilege access. Google's building that kind of stuff too. So, I don't know if there was a long road runway for them left <laughs> to really get a lot of adoption, a lot of uh, you know new customers, um, or if this is going to get some you know replaced by the cloud providers over time, anyways, and ultimately not be needed. Yeah. Well, Microsoft has quietly released their own Linux distribution. Yes, they released a Linux distribution, uh, and Steve Ballmer <laughs> might be eating his hat over it. I how don't know. The, how the tides have turned. <laughs> how the tides have turned. Uh, the new distro is called CBL Mariner, uh, and that is an internal Linux distribution for Microsoft's cloud infrastructure and edge products and services, and was designed to provide a consistent platform for these devices and services and enhances Microsoft's ability to stay current on Linux updates. Uh, CBL Mariner... CBL stands for Common Base Linux, and it's a mixture of the new GPL and MIT licensing. Uh, Balmer, of course, famously said in 2001 that Linux is cancer, and although he did back away from that in 2016, uh, he is still well known for his hatred of the Linux operating system. What does consistent platform for these devices mean? Does it mean more reliable? I, I mean, that's mm-hmm. how I interpreted it. as like, oh, so you're admitting that Windows boxes are not always consistent, yeah. even on the same hardware. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, sort of weird terminology that you're using. Uh, but the other thing about, I was thinking about edge devices, a lot of them are running, you know, very low end ARM CPUs that can't even yeah. run Windows, let alone, you know, they can barely run Linux. So they're giving you a very common Linux operating system for IoT. You get a much smaller package without having to now, you know, compromise on the Windows kernel. Especially with Windows 11, now they're requiring a TPM. What on earth? Yeah, I know. What I saw that. Oh. <laughs> uh, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when the rumor was that they were never going to do anything after Windows 10 and we were just going to get feature updates yeah. to Windows 10 
And then all of a sudden now we have Windows 11, and I'm like, really? Like, why, why muddy the waters? They, they, maybe they didn't include enough uh, enough waste. It's good that they stopped. If they're going to stop somewhere, though, they can't stop at 10. They got to go to 11. Right? <laughs> Crank it up to 11. <laughs> so for 11, you know, they're saying that the majority of Windows 10 boxes won't be actually be able to run Windows 11. And then if you've actually seen screenshots of Windows 11, you know that's a complete yeah. ripoff no. of Mac OS. <laughs> there you go. Like they, they literally stole the dock on Mac OS and put it on Windows 11. Like they took the start bar and just centered it. And you're like, oh, you guys were, you know, you could sort of wave your hands and say, well, that's just a natural evolution of start. And now you're like, no, no, you're just blatantly ripping off Apple. It's, it's hilarious <laughs> to see. Like we talk about how the tides are turned, but to, to, to think about the guys at Xerox who built the first GUIs and, and how, you know, Apple pretty much ripped that off. Yeah, and it's like, like really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> They've come around, come around full circle now. We're back to like early 1980s in terms of what what the GUI looks and, and operates like. It's <laughs> just insane. Yeah. Well, if you're uh, interested in running this new fancy Microsoft Linux distribution, uh, I will tell you it's not exactly easy to do. It is open source. You can go find the source code out on GitHub uh, under the CBL-Mariner uh, GitHub repo. Uh, but to do this, you'll actually have to you know, use another version of Linux uh, to actually build it. Because <laughs> there's no ISO for this. Uh, so you'll need to deploy something like Ubuntu, uh, you know, then go run a bunch of commands that are out there on the internet in this linked article uh, that will basically help you set up you know, a dedicated boot volume that will be this Microsoft Linux. And then you can create a VHD file, which you can then turn into any type of VMware or virtualization level host that you want to do. And then you can uh, play with it all you want to. Uh, I personally am going to wait until it's a container <laughs> that I can just download and not have to deal with any of that noise. Uh, but if you're really interested in this and you really want to see what Microsoft's done to Linux, uh, you can go do that right now with this uh, very complicated set of steps uh, using Ubuntu to get to Linux, Microsoft Linux, which is already a fail. I mean, the name just rolls off the tongue. If if uh, if, it, if it's as good as its name, then yay. <laughs> yeah, C, CBL Mariner. Yeah, I was like, uh, sounds like you know. Actually, the first article that I read about this didn't even tell you what CBL stood for. It was until I got to the second article that they actually mentioned CBL is the core, the common base Linux. Uh, which I was like, well, that's that's great marketing for you right there. I mean, it sounds like an oil rig or something. <laughs> It just it reminds me of 2010 when we had to uh, do pivot root to get persistent boot volumes on EC2. <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. Uh, any type of any type of non-native supported OS was always a nightmare to get onto uh, Linux EC2 originally. All right, well that is it for new news this week. Other than the lightning round, Peter, and from Hawaii, take us away. Azure Active Directory support for Azure Relay is now in public preview. I mean, a service that provides you no, you know, basically zero trust access that relays data to AD may need to support AZ, uh, Azure AZ, ADs. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, well, that team certainly didn't drop the baton. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> AppLovin builds on Google Cloud to transform mobile marketing. That's a super bad pun. Just terrible. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> AppLovin it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, nice. 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 I like that. You're going to get sued by McDonald's now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did it a little different for Nate. You're instead, you're going to get sued by McDonald's. We're going to call it satire and we're going to move on. <laughs> uh, Amazon Textract announces specialized support for automated processing of invoices and receipts. <laughs> Which makes you wonder, like, what did it do before? Like, why does that have to be so specialized? I thought it was MLAI that just learned. <laughs> Like apparently not learning so well. All the zeros were O's. It just screwed up all the spreadsheets. Yes, that is ML, not AI. That is what that is. Yes. Uh, Amazon Kendra releases WorkDocs Connector, what we've all been waiting for. 
And the WorkDocs GM is now terrified that they're actually going to find out how little WorkDocs is actually used. <laughs> Easily enable AWS config recording and deploy conformance packs across your organization using quick setup. I mean, how do, who doesn't love pushing things down in your organization from config? I mean, just one more way that you can bury Jonathan in <laughs> troubleshooting. That's actually where I've been for the past four or five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to figure out conformance facts. Yeah, <laughs> SCPs. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, announcing the general availability of AWS Local Zone in Denver. Yay. Another local zone. This one also is tied back to uh, US West 2, so not to US East 1. Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Since we figured out that only a certain, you know, the, the Ohio region is not going to host any of these. Amazon releases virtual Andon 2.2, which I knew nothing about, but apparently is a digital notification system for manufacturers. You knew nothing about it because when they announced virtual Andon 1.0, I was super excited about it because I was like, oh, the Andon cord is such a great DevOps story and all that. And then they wasted it on manufacturing, which is where it actually came from. But like, it could have been used in change management. It could have been used in, you know, their their chaos stuff. Like there's so many cool things that get done with Andon and they use it for manufacturing, unfortunately. But so if you were in the manufacturing space on AWS, uh, the virtual Andon 2.2 is pretty cool, but they wasted it, wasted the name on something simple. Like this. Well, they can keep their hands off my manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It'd be a snowball now supports multicast streams and routing by providing instances with direct access to external networks. Because no better way to exfiltrate your data but directly from the snowball where you just put it all. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it could only get worse. How could it be worse? <laughs> um, AWS Snowcone now supports multicast streams and routing by providing instances with direct access to external networks. Hopefully that doesn't sound too familiar. But I mean, now you can do half the data over the same exfiltration But path. very slow. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> But very slowly. Yes. Very slowly. That is it. That is it for today's round. And the winner is. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Since I heard that, I was like, yeah, he's got it. And the, and the, the virtual hand on one was pretty good too. Yeah. yeah. I, su- I succeed both of those to, uh, to Jonathan quite nicely. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned relaying, which, uh, you know, takes me back to the Olympics that are happening right now. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but have you realized that the, the Olympics are going on at all? Yeah, I have. <laughs> like, I mean, what? Like, it's such a terrible, terrible experience. Like, you know, the fact that everything happens 16 hours before we are awake, and then I basically wake up and I know everything that already happened in the Olympics that mattered. So there's no reason to watch it on TV. And then, like, the whole NBC online experience is terrible. Just uh, a little side two cents on the Olympics right now. But, uh, yeah, it's overall just a bit of a kind of disappointing event. Yeah, I think. kind of a gymnastics <laughs> family. We've been following gymnastics for, for a long time. And, and it must be so weird for the competitors to, to be in these huge arenas, which were designed for, you know, 100,000 people. And the only people clapping for them are their teammates. It's just really, really, really weird. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Didn't it seem like it would take a little bit of the pressure off, like still just feel like just another college meet where nobody showed up maybe but also i think there's you know you do something really awesome and the crowd cheers for you and you know you kind of get pumped by the crowd as well so i I imagine it's a for some who are very you know already nervous or have a little bit of stage fright maybe it's helpful for them but i I would imagine for athletes who are super extroverted it's Mm. not great and whether they feel the same reward at the end of it 
and not having even been cheered by a crowd the whole time would be a little disappointing. Yeah. You see a score and they're like 14.3 and you're like, what's you know, the commentators are like, that's an amazing score. And like, there's no, nothing happening in the building. No <laughs> one's excited. Yeah. Yeah, a little strange. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't bail on it actually, or push push it out another year or something else. It's. Uh, I mean, if they push it another year, they would be you know be right on top of the Winter Olympics, which are coming up right in February. So you know you're you're going to wrap up the summer now, and then we go into Winter uh, Olympics in February because they were originally mm-hmm. scheduled for 2022. Uh, but of course, they're in China, so then there's a bunch of you know do we boycott them and a bunch of things that are going on. It's all, almost like they could just have canceled it, and you know the world would have carried on turning and and working just the same. It's a sporting event. It's not. Yeah, but then the IOC would be in trouble because how do they convince cities to spend billions of dollars on infrastructure mm. they use for two weeks if they can't, you know, if the event could be canceled? Yeah, I know Japan did spend a lot of money, but at least at least they got to reuse a lot of their previous venues. So, yeah, I mean, it's getting to the point where I'm like, why don't you guys just build, uh, you know, an Olympics village <laughs> in some place that's not not themed, not branded, and then you basically when you rotate the host country, you just have the host country come and decorate it. <laughs> <laughs> and do all the performances because I mean, like really at the end of the day the only differences between the events are you know the opening closing ceremonies are very localized to mm-hmm. the company you know to the country and then like yeah like on some of the courses they're unique but you could make them you could you know bulldoze the you know the half pipe and build new half pipes every four years that's no big deal like the amount of money they're asking people to spend is just ridiculous and the benefit isn't there yeah, i mean i guess it's just it's it's a huge tourist draw those those countries so it's 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 supposed to be a net net benefit not, it's not, not going Japan. so well for Japan not, this not year this, and that, no. that reinvestment. Usually a huge tourist draw. But, I mean, we always move it back to Greece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go, back to, go back to its homeland. It's perfect. All right. Well, other things that are coming up other than the Olympics, which will be almost over by the time this drops, but, uh, you know, this the uh, Amazon Summit, uh, of course, is coming up still in August, uh, you know, 24th, uh, against the AWS Reinforced Conference. Again, because Amazon didn't have confidence in Reinforced calling, pulling the crowds, uh, so they're combining it with the summit. And then reinvent, of course, on November 29th through December 3rd. And Google Cloud Next, we have an update. Registration is now open for the virtual Google Cloud Next event, October 12th through the 14th. So it sounds like Google has bailed out on doing an in-person conference once again. I think that is purely driven by Delta variant and the unknowns yeah. of the Delta variant. And it might be the ones that are ahead of the game here. We'll see. Yeah, they may be. You know, we'll still see if, reinfo- you know, if, if reinvent happens or reinforce as well. Uh, but you know, I, I imagine you know, coming into August, you you know, you only have a couple of months for people to buy airfare and to get there. I, I think it was just not a tenable uh, solution for Google at this point, and I, I, I applaud them for that. I think it's a good call. Uh, but again, I'm glad it's going to be only two days versus the 18 weeks of Google <laughs> Next uh, that we had last time, which was just ridiculous. Uh, so there you go. And that is it for things coming up. Uh, Google, do go register for Google Cloud Next if you want to. I registered yesterday, uh, as I put it into the show notes, because uh, it's free. So. Go enjoy the Google Cloud uh, as it goes. We'll see you next week here in the Cloud Pod. Bye, everybody. See ya. And that is the Week in the Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.